0: Support for Defiance comes from Kraken, consistently rated the best and most secure Bitcoin exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy and sell Bitcoin. With 24-7, 365, world-class customer service, you can trust Kraken to support you, whoever you are and wherever you are. Available at kraken.com or via the mobile app, which is available to download from the Apple or Google app stores. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O.
1: Thank you for joining us. Drugs are menacing our society. They're threatening our values and undercutting our institutions. They're killing our children.
2: Say yes to your life. And when it comes to drugs and alcohol, just say no.
1: On February the 1st, it will no longer be a crime to possess small quantities of drugs in the American state of Oregon. A bill that passed last November has decriminalised personal drug possession, making it a misdemeanour rather than a criminal offence. Cannabis can now be bought legally in over a dozen US states. Most have decriminalised it, and it only remains illegal in six states. A number of police forces in the UK no longer arrest those caught possessing small quantities of drugs, and many European and South American countries have decriminalised all drug use. After decriminalisation, legalisation is next on the agenda. And Colombia is currently leading the way, considering the legalisation of cocaine. As Oregon becomes the first US state to decriminalise drug use, the attitude towards drugs and drug users is shifting. With more people than ever before being jailed for drug use, and overdoses at a record high, the war on drugs that started 50 years ago has failed. Governments are recognising that treating drugs as a criminal justice issue has only made the drugs problem worse, and evidence from countries with long histories of drug reform, such as Portugal, proved that treating drug use as a public health issue has shown far more positive results. In this episode, we ask drug reformers in the US and the UK about what needs to be done and why we are so slow in enacting drug reform policy. And the Portuguese doctor, whose reforms from 20 years ago still stand as the benchmark for the world, explains what the US should do next. I am Tom Pattinson, and this is The End of the Drug War for Defiance.
0: I'm Steve Rolls. I'm the Senior Policy Analyst for Transform Drug Policy Foundation. It's a charity based in the UK, but operating internationally critiquing the failings of the war on drugs and the whole criminal justice-led approach to drugs and advocating for um, alternative approaches that are rooted more in human rights and public health. And a particular focus of ours has been developing um, alternatives to the war on drugs, not just saying, look, the war on drugs is you know, a, a, a failed policy, but saying, you know, trying to come up with a coherent vision of what comes after the war on drugs. So specifically looking at decriminalization, ending the criminalization of people who use drugs, but also how we can legally regulate currently illegal drug markets. So looking at the specific models of how we would have legal legal drugs. Um, drugs are here anyway, whether we like it or not. And responsible policymakers need to start from that baseline and manage that reality rather than pers- continue to pursue this sort of fantasy that we can somehow eradicate drugs from society. Clearly, we can't. We've been trying that for you know, generations now. It hasn't happened. We've got further and further away from this mystical drug-free world. We think it's time to reorient towards public health, pragmatic management approach to reduce harm, because clearly the war on drugs doesn't do that.
1: It was 50 years ago that the UK introduced the 1971 Misuse of Drugs Act, and it was the same year that Nixon declared a war on drugs in the US.
3: America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive.
1: Its aim was to use enforcement to stop supply through illegal production and deter demand by punishing possession and use.
0: We've had half a century of this as our model. And every single one of those years, of those of those 50 years, we've got further and further away from the aspirations of the war on drugs to create a drug-free society. It hasn't done that. Uh, it's done the opposite of that. But it, it's much worse than just failing to eradicate drugs from society. It has created huge secondary costs. It's made risky drugs more risky because you don't know the strength and purity. There's no information on the packaging. You may get sold things that you, you know, you're not expecting. Um, you have to interact with a potentially violent illegal trade to access those markets. It's fueled a, an illegal market controlled by often violent organized crime groups that turns over three to $400 billion per year it's it's put an enormous burden on the criminal justice system, not just police time, but also uh, you know the, the court system, the prison system, the probation system. So it's a huge burden on the taxpayer. It worsens public health costs of of drug misuse, and it actually prevents us responding to problematic drug use in an effective way because it you know the people that we need to reach are afraid to seek help because they're fearful of legal consequences, and we're siphoning away resources that we should be spending on treatment and risk education and harm reduction and all that—all those public health things that we know actually work, and funneling that money into completely counterproductive enforcement and criminal justice interventions, which we know from the last 50 years do the exact opposite of what we would want them to do. So, on pretty much any metric, whether it's a public health measures or criminal justice measures or you know, personal liberty or economic analysis, it's been a sort of catastrophic failure. And it's, it's remarkable, really, the fact it has been this generational failure, that it's still here.
1: And it's still failing. The opioid epidemic that takes the lives of 70,000 people a year in America grabs the headlines. But UK drug-related deaths are rising at an alarming rate.
0: We have the highest drug-related deaths of any EU country. Scotland has the, the highest level of drug-related deaths of any country in the world, higher than America, um, which is, you know, everyone's kind of, oh, the opioid epidemic and the drug deaths epidemic in, in, in the USA. Well, it's worse in Scotland. More and more people are using drugs. There's more and more drug-related harms. You know, for a policy that is supposed to get rid of drugs from society and protect people from drugs, it's clearly doing the opposite and has been doing for decades. What we need to do first, what government needs to do is to look at the evidence and acknowledge that the current approach, that the criminal justice led approach isn't working um, and look at the evidence, uh, both in the UK and around the world, of the kinds of policies that are going to move us in the right direction. And that basically means a fundamental kind of reorientation away from this punitive prohibition, criminal justice led um, approach to drugs towards a public health model. You, you acknowledge that this is fundamentally a challenge a health and social policy challenge, and you deal with it in in that way. Um, you know we, we know what works there 's no real mystery there there 's an enormous literature on this there 's an enormous body of expertise that the government just needs to listen to it and they've got they 've got plenty of experts you know the advisory council on the misuse of drugs is the independent body of experts set up by the government to advise them on how to respond to the drug problems. And they're forever making very sensible recommendations, which the government just ignores and then announces another big criminal justice crackdown. The government needs to listen to their own experts as well as the voices of lived experience and people in civil society.
1: And perhaps now some of those voices are being heard. Grassroots reform movements are springing up all across states in America. And national governments make visits to countries such as Portugal, who moved to a humanist healthcare method over a criminal one 20 years ago.
0: You know, it feels like we're edging towards a sort of tipping point of drug policy and law reform. At the moment, we are still on the prohibitionist side of the fence. I mean, drugs are all still illegal. To possess, uh, and you know, we still have prisons full of minor drug offenders and people who who are in prison for drug-related offending. Um, we still spend the vast majority of our drug budgets on enforcement and not on public health interventions. I mean, we are still, uh, you know, even though there is significant movement both in the political arena and in terms of public opinion and and sort of media opinion towards. Reform uh, and a sort of evolution of our, our viewpoint. We are still, um, you know, we are still a prohibitionist country, and drug war narratives and drug war rhetoric does still dominate the, the public and political space. That said, um, it does. It feels like you know that the public tolerance for old school kind of tough on drugs posturing is wearing thin.
1: Anthony Johnson is a former criminal defence attorney who spent years witnessing nonviolent cannabis users being sent to prison and the effects it had on their families and their future careers. He started working on drug policy in his student days and has been involved in the reforms of medicinal marijuana, decriminalising cannabis and, more recently, legalisation of the drug. Johnson was the co-author and chief petitioner of Oregon's November 2020 Measure 110 bill which decriminalized possession of small quantities of all drugs in the state.
4: So Measure 110, which uh, the go starts going into effect mainly here on February 1st, uh, decriminalizes the personal possession of all drugs in Oregon. And the personal possession in Oregon is the uh, misdemeanor amount. So you have misdemeanors, which are low-level crimes and then felony amounts. And so... In 2017, to their credit, the Oregon legislature uh, passed legislation and led by ACLU and other drug policy criminal justice reform organizations that defelonized the personal possession of drugs. So in Oregon, up until 2017, any drug other than cannabis... So whether it be psilocybin, magic mushrooms, or um, acid, or MDMA, or cocaine, or heroin, any p- possession of any amount of drugs used to be a felony in Oregon. And in 2017, the legislature changed that and made the lowest Level felonies turn that into a misdemeanor, so the the prison sentences aren't as long, and the uh, probation sentence and the consequences aren't as severe for a misdemeanor as they are from a as a, from a felony. And so, for instance, you know, twelve grams of psilocybin mushrooms uh, under that amount is a misdemeanor before Measure One Ten passed. Under two grams of cocaine, under a gram of heroin. So what Measure 110 did is take the lowest level misdemeanor offense and bring that down to a civil infraction, so a, a ticketable offense, similar to how Oregon used to treat cannabis before we legalized cannabis. So instead of being arrested, and being put in a jail cell, having a criminal record, potentially serving a prison sentence, uh, people will get a ticket and they'll be subject to upwards of a $100 fine, or they can seek a drug treatment assessment, a health assessment from a drug treatment provider. If they undergo a health assessment, which isn't mandatory treatment, but it's talking to a healthcare professional to discuss your drug use and to get a recommendation whether you may need treatment, and to know where drug treatment resources are available for you, if you undergo that health assessment, then the fine is waived. We also set aside funding from legal and tax cannabis sales, and the marijuana industry, the cannabis industry, um, just became a billion-dollar industry in Oregon. And so every uh, amount of tax revenue that comes in above $40 million in Oregon will go to drug treatment Uh, providers, recovery centers, harm reduction specialists. And so more people will be able to get the treatment they need. So immediately, Oregon should see an additional $100 million or more go towards drug treatment services. So that's twofold of Measure 110. We move away from treating drug use and addiction as a criminal law enforcement issue. We start treating it as a health issue. And instead of putting people in jail and giving them a criminal record, uh, we refer them to drug treatment and recovery health services.
1: Giving drug users the help they need rather than sending them to prison is the major shift with drug reform such as the 110 bill passed in Oregon. The effects of a criminal record can stay with people all their lives and could jeopardize their chances of getting employment, health care, housing and insurances.
3: I I got arrested when I was 18 years old uh just months after graduating from high school uh for possession of of cocaine.
1: This is Matt Sutton of the Drugs Policy Alliance.
3: I was, you know, with a friend and we had been, you know, we had been out partying, we had some drugs on us and, you know, we got stopped by a cop and, you know, we ended up getting searched and they found a very small amount of cocaine on us um you know they found found l- less than half a gram on my friend and less than a gram on me i was uh sentenced to 3 years of probation and you know a lot of other things but you know when you, when you're using drugs it it's, it's very difficult to complete the conditions of your probation so you know a lot of our opponents would say that Arresting people, that, that's gonna help them because that's gonna basically, you know, be something that puts a bump in the road for them and you know makes them change their life or whatever, right? But that's really not how it works. You know, and I know that for pers- from personal experience, because in order to complete your probation successfully, you need to do things like have a job, uh, complete, you know, hundreds of hours of community service, you need to pay fines. You need to, uh, they are doing drug testing on you. And as somebody that is actively using drugs, one, I was failing drug tests. Two, it was hard for me to keep a job. Uh, It was hard for me to even make it to my appointments because, you know, lots of times I didn't have reliable transportation, Um, you know, so I was like missing different things that I needed to get to. And, um, and, And also just, you know, doing things like, you know, trying to like, go to these, you know, different classes or community service or all these other things that they want you to do Mm -hmm. in order to actually finish your probation were nearly impossible for me. So what ended up happening is, you know, I ended up getting in, you know, more trouble from, you know, a variety of different things, you know, like failing drug tests, you know, other small arrests such as like public intoxication, disorderly conduct. And I ended up being on probation for a total of eight years, actually. <laughs> uh, and, you know, throughout that time, you know, nobody was really providing me the kind of help that I needed to be able to, like, get better. You know, it was a very punitive approach. Criminalizing people, what we've seen is that hasn't helped improve the lives of anyone. It certainly didn't improve my life. <laughs> you know, today I've actually, I, I I have actually been sober for over seven years now, and it really wasn't until I got off of the criminal justice system completely that I was able to get the kind of help that I needed. Because, you know, for once I finally had like a reason to live, you know, and I had, you know, I it seemed like I had a brighter future. And, and 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 I cared more about making the most of my life, you know, and I finally didn't have the criminal justice system hovering over my shoulder, taking my rights away, disrespecting me, all those kind of things, you know. I, I don't know where someone came up with that idea that that was going to help. People. Um, it, it certainly doesn't, and and we have plenty of evidence to show that that does not help people. And I personally think that this is probably the the worst part of it is, uh, you know, the burden of a criminal record because you know that for me has been a huge barrier even today you know, it's been over 15 years since that arrest. And a lot of people believe that those kind of things will just, you know, oh, they don't show up on your record after seven or eight years, you know, blah, blah, blah. They actually do. Um, You know, a lot of times employers, uh, potential employers or potential landlords or whatever, will take that into account, how long it's been since you were arrested. But a lot of background checks, actually will show that regardless of how long it's been and so it can still be a significant barrier in be a, being able to gain employment housing you know even things like financial aid to be able to get an education so these are huge barriers that we're putting on people instead of just again you know the, the much better route would be what we're trying in oregon which would be to provide people that access to the services that they need so that they can actually get better.
1: Portugal's drug policy is often cited as an example of how drug reform has worked. Back in 2001, an amendment was made to their drug laws to decriminalize personal possession of drugs and to make drug possession a misdemeanor with users fined or provided a healthcare option rather than a criminal offense. The man behind that reform is João Goulão, now the National Drug Coordinator of Portugal.
2: My name is João Goulão. I'm a medical doctor, family doctor, and I I have been acting for a long time as the responsible for the drugs policies in in Portugal under the Ministry of Health. Uh, So, uh, step by step, I, I became the responsible at the national level And now I'm the national coordinator for for drugs and uh, the the harmful use of alcohol uh, as well. I think it's perhaps uh, useful to understand a little bit of the background of the development of the problematic drug use in Portugal. I think it's important and uh, useful for for people to understand that uh, uh, Drug-related problems in Portugal started later than in most of the European countries and in other places of the world, Uh, because, as you know, we lived for a long time under a dictatorship, for 50 years. And during that time, in fact, of course, there were some some small purses of drug users, but it was not a massive uh, problem. uh, Drugs were not easily accessible. We had a very controlled society by political police, uh, uh, and even uh, by censorship, Uh, some movements that happened elsewhere uh, were difficult to reach us. Uh, I'm thinking about the EP movement uh, or the, the students' movement in France in the late 60s, all those things... We had distant echoes of that, but we did not leave it in person. Uh, we were kept a part of the use of other countries. Uh, it was almost impossible for us to travel abroad. And in fact, drugs were not uh, an issue.
1: Hundreds of thousands of Portuguese young men were deployed as soldiers across Portugal's colonies in Mozambique, Guinea, Angola and other African countries. Here they were supplied with cheap whiskey and readily available cannabis to keep them entertained and happy. When the Carnation Revolution of 1974 took place, the dictatorship fell and the colonies collapsed.
2: We had the decolonization process with the return of uh, uh, soldiers and settlers from the colonies, almost a million people coming back to mainland in a population of 10 million, more or less stable, uh, you can imagine how difficult it was to accommodate uh, all those people and uh, the problems that arose from 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 that and when uh, uh, the, the soldiers came most of them they brought not only their habits but uh, also uh, tones, literally tones of cannabis of uh, of marijuana that suddenly uh, they they brought and they they uh, shared with their friends and relatives uh, for free uh, as a gift. You know, <laughs> so there was a real explosion of experimentation. And in my in my view, what is important in that period is that it happened uh, in a, a completely uh, cross-cutting way in all society. It was not something that happened only among uh, marginalized minorities, uh, uh, poor people, the favela. No, it it cross-cutted all the layers of the society. Medium class, upper classes, uh, uh, political class, everybody. And also shortly after some, let's call them some criminal organizations, came into our territory, bringing and making available all the other substances. So suddenly we had everything, not only cannabis, but uh, heroin, cocaine, LSD, you name it, in a completely unprepared society to deal with it.
1: It's estimated that Portugal suddenly had 100,000 heroin addicts, 1% of the country's population. And these were not just the poor, the marginalised or the minority communities. This was spread across all sectors of society. Petty crime was rising, overdoses were common and the impact on society and public health was becoming a major concern. Then, in the 1980s, AIDS came along
2: and spread among users at a terrifying rate. From the beginning, the approach that uh, even the the state had was quite um, tolerant. But uh, because every family had problems at, at home, the way people addressed this was not very tough as in other in other places, okay? People tended to say, okay, it's a health issue, it's a, it's a health problem, it's a disease. And even if our law was uh, quite tough, inspired in the war on drugs, uh, in practice, there was a kind of tolerance towards drug users. Uh, our policy f- from the beginning, from the beginning of the 80s, started to be mostly addressing uh, the problem as a health and social issue rather than a criminal one. Okay? Then we developed, uh, through the years, we developed a good set of health responses.
1: The state invested incentives to treat addiction, spent money on preventative work and harm reduction measures, and was one of the first places to introduce needle exchange programs and safe places
2: for users. I can imagine, and I I don't know if it's real or, or not, but I can imagine a medium-class housewife discussing with the priest and saying, oh, my boy is not a criminal, he's someone in need of help, he's sick, he has a disease, but people tended to think that putting... drug users in prison was not the solution for for the problem.
1: During the 90s, although investment into healthcare programs was increasing, the number of drug deaths and HIV infections was still rising. Drug users feared seeking medical help because of the risk of being prosecuted. The government, under Prime Minister Antonio Guterres, now the UN Secretary-General, brought together nine experts from different fields and tasked them with creating a new drug strategy
2: we proposed to turn drug use and possession for use, possession of small amounts of drugs, into a misdemeanor instead of being a criminal offense. And that avoids that people that use drugs uh, get a criminal record that stands and stigmatizes for life uh, and avoids that people go to jail by mere uh, drug use. Uh, of course, drug trafficking is still severely t- punished uh, under the criminal system. Okay? Our proposal was to change only one article of our drugs law, uh, a law that uh, came from '93, And as I said, it was quite tough. Uh, one article, the article that deals with personal use and possession for use. Okay? All the rest remains and still remains now, today. Okay? We only changed that and uh, we established a kind of uh, threshold that is calculated on the basis of personal use for 10 days. If you have more than that, you are sent to the criminal uh, justice system and you may, in fact, end up in prison. Gulao. <inaudible>
1: explains that decriminalising drugs is just one factor of their drugs policy, not the silver bullet. But, he says, once that was introduced, everything became much more coherent. Needle exchanges, methadone programmes, social responses, proactively seeking out those who need help. Shelters, street teams and a solid system for treatment allowed them to treat those in need.
2: We could reach successive waves of people, uh, and uh, turn those dramatic numbers that we had in terms of hiv infections in terms of overdose deaths at the time in the late uh, 90s we, we had at least one overdose death a day that means 360 something nowadays we are we have uh, around 40 uh, overdose deaths a year all over the country criminality dropped, that uh, acquisitive criminality dropped. The age of experimentation among youngsters uh, increased. So uh, at a given time, they uh, started experimenting at uh, 11, 12 years old. Uh, Nowadays, they experiment around 16, 17 years old. HIV infections, hepatitis, everything dropped. It's not decriminalization on itself. It's no longer a taboo. If you have problems with drugs, you can assume them. You can seek for for help without fearing, even being fired of your of your job. This is, in my view, this is mostly the the, the difference. It's a humane way how we deal w- with the problem, and and. Uh, uh, Decriminalisation is, is just one of the translations of it.
1: That humane attitude that Portugal has taken and its culture of care has been more instrumental in the program's success than the policies that have been put into place, he says. The American culture of big pharma influence and prescription drugs being handed out so freely is one major element of the opioid crisis in the US.
2: I don't want to be unfair to doctors in in the United States, uh, but of course, the pressure of pharma is much more present uh, than here, and there's a different culture uh, uh, about the use of uh, of opioids. Of course, we struggle for uh, making opioids available in some parts of the world for those who need them, and as you know, to... Most, lots of people who would benefit from their use cannot assess. Here in Europe, I think we have a culture of, uh, well, we we use opioids when they are really needed, not for minor diseases, minor pain. I think the, the pen of our colleagues in America is very light on doing it. Or at least it was, it was. The next step on
1: from decriminalization is
2: legalization.
1: As we've seen with cannabis, which went from legalized for medicinal purposes to decriminalized for personal use, it is now legal in many states.
2: In my view, to be coherent uh, with our uh, current policy, we should talk about, decrimi- uh, about regulating all the drugs. We, we decriminalized the use of all the drugs, if you are moving forward, I think we should not have a different approach for cannabis than the others, because the principle is the same. On one, one side, I believe that cannabis is no longer a, sto- a soft drug. Okay. On the other hand, uh, the prin- if the principle if to uh, empower the citizen, the in- informed citizen to make their own Choices. Why to uh, regulate and make available legally uh, one of th- of the drugs and not the others?
1: But the leap from decriminalising
2: to legalising is a big one,
1: and something that is quite hard to conceive for politicians and the public alike.
0: The idea of legalising drugs, which in people's in the public mind are so associated with. Violence and criminality and sort of depravity and squalor and addiction. The idea that you would legalize something like that seems profoundly counterintuitive. Drug law reform doesn't lend itself, I don't think, to kind of bumper sticker slogans. You know, saying drugs are bad, let's fight them. At a gut level, it's very appealing. And and to sort of say, well, actually, we need to unravel that and say, look, yes, drugs can be uh, harmful, but a criminal justice approach has historically made things worse. We know that public health approaches can um, move us in a more positive direction. That is essentially what we're talking about, and here's some policy... It, it just doesn't fit on a, a bumper sticker. It doesn't lend itself to sort of, sort of Twitter-friendly sloganeering.
1: And it is this fear of commercialization of the drug industry that might keep drugs illegal for some time yet. Kevin Sabbat has advised three consecutive presidents on US drug policy and argues that whilst cannabis users shouldn't be jailed, legalising the drug has already led to commercialization and big business making big profits. Cannabis jellies and even pot tarts, he claims, are targeting younger and younger users, and he gives the example of pot shops being found most densely in poorer communities, a leaf, he says, that is straight from the book of the major alcohol brands. Wall Street Investors will be peddling legalised drugs to make as much money as possible, Sabbat argues. However, Steve Rolls thinks that this is the perfect time to watch, learn and design new policy models.
2: That The
0: risk of over commercialization and kind of corporate capture and, and the kind of monopolisation of the market that we've seen with Alcon Tobacco, with three or four big alcohol companies dominating the global market and being so uh, wealthy and powerful that they can actually influence government policy and undermine effective public health responses and undermine effective regulation. But with, with something like cannabis or, or other drugs in the future going forward, when they are legalized, we actually have an opportunity to ensure to design market structures and to design regulatory models that can mitigate some of those risks of corporate capture and, and monopolization. And we can learn from the mistakes we've made with alcohol and tobacco and pharmaceuticals in the past and try and design policy models that prevent some of those bad things happening when we looked at you know how we might regulate stimulants you know m- much more challenging in many ways than re- how you might regulate cannabis because stimulants things like cocaine and mdma and amphetamines are you know demonstrably uh, more risky than, than than cannabis. Cannabis is not without risks, but compared to cocaine, it's, it's relatively low risk. So, how would you regulate something like cocaine? Because if we want to end the war on drugs, you have to let regulate the more risky drugs as well. So, we've said, okay, we wouldn't want commercial pressures in there, profit-seeking entities in control of the market who would seek to um, increase use or uh, you know increase consumption as a way of making money. So we've suggested you would have something that was more like a pharmacy but a state monopoly retail model. So a bit like uh, gambling used to be in the UK or like some of the cannabis retailing is in some Canadian provinces, it is owned and controlled by a government agency you know, whilst not perfect, I think the the idea is that they will act more in the public good than in the interests of corporate or commercial profits.
1: The war on drugs hasn't worked. Punishing users has kept the drugs trade underground. It's stopped people who needed help from getting it. And it's meant that the billions of dollars in profits are kept in the hands of organized crime gangs. Decriminalising will hopefully be a big step towards shifting the public perception of drug use from being a criminal issue to being a healthcare issue, and it will stop tens of thousands of people from ending up in jail or living with a criminal record. Legalisation of all drugs will certainly be a few years off in most countries, and it may well see the corporate world cashing in on some of society's most vulnerable. But it's up to governments, regulators and reformers to ensure this doesn't happen ensure any profits are re-entered into the healthcare system. Without that correct regulation, some drug profits may end up in the hands of big businesses. But don't forget, currently all drug profits are going into the hands of cartels who aren't concerned with tax or rehabilitation or healthcare programs. But fundamentally, it's also important to look at some of the root causes
2: of why people choose to take drugs. In my view, and uh, simplifying uh, perhaps too much, people use drugs for one of two reasons. Either to relieve pain, to relieve suffering, or to potentiate joy to happiness. When you want to potentiate pleasure, and you want to, to go uh, to, to attend a festival or go to disco, you use one kind of substances, mostly stimulants uh, you can enjoy, uh, dance. and uh, When you are suffering like our societies are in the present moment, the importance of other substances such as opioids and in heroin uh, increases.
0: What drives a lot of problematic use is actually a wider social malaise. It's the underlying problems of deprivation and inequality and urban deprivation. And those deeper social problems are at the heart of a lot of uh, our real drug problems.
1: This show was written and narrated by myself, Tom Pattinson. Additional production and sound design was by Danny Knowles, and Peter McCormack was the executive producer. I'd like to thank Steve Rolls, Zhao Gulao, Matt Sutton and Anthony Johnson, who were so generous with their time. Support for Defiance comes from Kraken, the best and safest place to buy and sell Bitcoin, available at kraken.com or you can download the app from the Apple or Google App Stores. I'm Tom Pattinson. Head over to defiance.news where you can download previous shows and watch our films.